Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion titled, Leo Margulies, The Little Giant of the Pulps. Participating are, Philip Sherman, the nephew of Margulies, Ed Hals, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, and publisher at Murania Press, and pulp historian and author, Will Murray. It was recorded on August 14, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Pulp Fest committee member Mike Chomko introduces the panel. We are, uh, have, have two themes this year, the 125th anniversary of the birth of H.P. Lovecraft, and we're also uh, honoring the thrilling chain of magazines. Uh, they published uh, Phantom Detective, Mass Rider, and of course, Thrilling Detective, Thrilling Mystery, Thrilling Adventure, Thrilling Love Stories, Thrilling Sports Stories, and Popular Detective, other <laughs> things like that. <coughs> it, uh, it was started by a man named Ned Pines. Uh, the American News Corporation asked him to start up a chain of pulp magazines after, who was it, uh, Street and Smith? That left? Yeah, yeah Street and Smith. They left. lost the Street and Smith account, so American News asked Pines to start a chain of pulps, and uh, that's how the thrilling group was born. He approached uh, a man named Leo Marjolies. Is that how we say it, Philip? Mm-hmm. Uh, who had worked for Muncie uh, in various capacities. He's also worked as a literary agent. Uh, and that's uh, how we uh, have Philip here. Philip Sherman is the nephew of uh, Leo, and he's going to tell us uh, a little bit about his uncle in uh, family life as well as, as his relationship with. Uh, various writers and uh, editors and whatnot involved in the pulps and we'll have pictures over here. And these two gentlemen to my left and right are are, our pulp scholars, Will Murray, author of Doc Savage and now Tarzan, but he's also written a ton ton of stuff about pulp magazines for many, many years. And this guy, Ed Hulse, a uh, Pulp Fest committee member emeritus, and uh, also the publisher of Blood and Thunder and Urania Press books. And he's written a ton of stuff about pulps and whatnot as well. So there they are. Philip Sherman, Will Murray, Ed Hulse. Want to take the reins or should I? Thank you very much. What do you want to do? Thank you very much, Mike. And I want to thank the committee for inviting me here. I'm delighted to be here to honor, to help you honor Leo Margulies and the Standard Magazines organization. The picture you see before you is my uncle on the right. He's three years old there. And he's with his sister, my mother, who's one. And those outfits that they're wearing were made by my grandmother. Believe it or not. They didn't go around in those outfits, I'm sure, every day. <laughs> I'm sure not. My earliest memories of Leo, of course, were when I was a kid. Uh, he and Sylvia, his wife, lived in Manhattan at the time, and I lived in Brooklyn. And um, my grandmother lived with us. Leo's mother lived with us. And they would come over every Sunday, not every Sunday, every other, every third Sunday to ha- for Sunday dinner. And Leo was a lot of fun. He was a great, great, great uncle. He would take me and my sister Joan, who was four years younger, to Coney Island, and we would get into these little bumper cars, and we would bump into each other screaming. This was a man who was then managing or editing about 45 pulp magazines. But he would get in those cars with us, and we would have a ball. He played, I remember one time he played hide and seek with us. He would pretend to be my parents' pillows on their bed and he would cover himself up and we couldn't find him to save our lives. 
Now this is not, an, not a very patient man, but he lay there pretending to be these pillows for I don't know how long. We never found them. And by the way, my daughter told me that years later, he played the same game with them. Mm. When I was 15, he asked me if I would like to proofread some of his manuscripts. I said, sure. And he paid me two cents a word. I didn't know at the time he was paying his writers one cent a word. <laughs> this was amazing. That was like six dollars a page. Can you imagine what that would be today? Unbelievable. But he was very generous. This was so typical of Leo. Another example of that. One day he took me to a corner soda fountain in Brooklyn. And I stopped by the comic book stand, Superman, Batman. So the mo I must have been at least 10. And he went over to buy a cigar or whatever. And he said, Philip, pick out a couple of those. And I couldn't pick, figure out what I wanted. How could I possibly decide on one or two? So he said, why don't you take one of each? <laughs> and I walked home with 40 comic books. <laughs> this was, again, so typical of Leo. Well, let's go back a bit to when Leo himself was a kid. He was, of course, fascinated by books. He spent his days at the library. He grew up in Brooklyn, oh, despite what's in the history books. He did not grow up in Connecticut. He grew up in Brooklyn. He was born in Brooklyn, and he moved to Connecticut when he was 21. But anyway, that's not important. He was so fascinated by stories, by telling stories, by writing stories, that he decided to become a journalist major. And he went to Columbia as a journalism major. And somehow or other he met, he ran into Robert Davis, who was then editor at Muncie Magazines, a big editor. Leo said once he was the greatest editor there ever was. And Muncie hired him, I'm sorry, Davis hired him at Muncie and said to him, you're gonna learn a lot more here than you ever will at college. And Leo later said he never regretted that move. But what he did was he was hired as an office boy, carrying manuscripts from one place to another. And he started reading some of these manuscripts and commenting about them. And people realized that this was a very smart young man who could pick out a good story. He knew when he came upon a good story. And that was kind of the early beginning of his editing publishing career. He went through a rapid change of jobs over the next dozen years. He worked for, um, after he left, they worked for Fox Films as their East Coast research director. He went with a new magazine company called Tower Magazines, who published magazines that were only sold in Woolworth stores. And finally, in 1929, he formed a literary agency with a man named Jacques Chambron. He was with Jacques Chambron for a short period of time, but he announced the agency in January of 29, and he sent a card to one of then one of the most popular writers of the time, doesn't matter who, and I want to read you what he wrote in handwriting on that card that he sent to this man. This little business that we have here is getting going great guns and will grow. I have been selling from the very first day in business. I sure would like a crack at some of your stuff. I know that you as a big as a big timer are getting those big prices. And it occurred to me I might be able to do things with some of your stories. I should get more money. May I have slide number two, please? This is a picture of Leo when he was 25, and that baby he's holding, who was just born a few months before, is my cousin, who's now 90. Wow. wow. And this is 1925, Ruth Katz. And she told me a couple of stories about Leo. I'll, I'll mention one or two of them. Anyway, so he was at this agency, and I might mention that there was a New Yorker article about three years ago that talked about Jacques Chambron. Turns out, years after Leo left him, he was 
Chambron was indicted for embezzling money from uh, clients and for stealing stories from others. Mm -hmm. Leo was lucky to get away. Anyway, Leo then started another agency, left that after 19 or 15 months, and then yet formed a third one. He then wrote to one of his clients, agenting is so darn lousy, I'm about to give up the ghost. And he did, and he joined Ned Pines. So over a period of about some 14 years, he was with three companies and three agencies. The man was very impatient. He suffered, he didn't suffer fools likely. He was ambitious, he had a temper, and he was very talented, clearly. Working for his last agency, he hired a young woman named Sylvia Margulies. She was apparently just out of college. She went to SMU. And when he went to Ned Pines and to Standard, what became Standard Magazines in 1932, he brought her along. Now, as you know, publishers have long used house names. There was one particular house name that became rather prominent in early 1934, J. C. K. M. Scanlon. I'm sure you all know about C. K. M. Scanlon. This was a, a house name that represented a scandal. The word Scanlon was a corruption of the word scandal. And CKM were the following, and they were the initials for the following names, Sylvia Kleinman Margulies. Now, Sylvia Kleinman, who worked for him, did not have the name Margulies for another five years, four years. But Sylvia was having an affair with her while still married to a woman named Vivian. And the only mention I've ever found of Vivian was in the 1930 census. But anyway, by the end of 19, the 1930s, Leo was married to Sylvia. So after this rather hectic change of, career, change of job career, it seemed that Leo kind of settled down. He worked for Standard for about 18 years. I suppose a lot of that had to do with Sylvia. May I have the next slide, please? When Leo was, uh, during the war, Leo was a war correspondent twice. Once in the Navy in 1943, and that's him there and at that point, and once in 1945. Uh, he ran to a man named Don Hale Munson, who was a would-be writer. And he ran into him during the war while in Okinawa in 1943. And Munson wrote about this incident of meeting him later on, I believe it was in Writer's Digest, two years later. And the story that Munson wrote in the third person was the following. Three correspondents entered the pub tent, I'm sorry, entered the press tent and asked for the chief censor and were told he was out. Okay, one said, let's see him later. Let's go, Margulies. The GI correspondent snapped alert. Margulies, a rare and magic name. He saw it only in Writer's Digest, in Standard Magazines, and at the bottom of Letters of Rejection. <laughs> Okinawa was the last place you'd expect to hear it. My God, are you Leo Margulies? Right, said the cheerful little man in the Navy uniform. Oh, groaned the GI, the rejections you've sent me. Leo laughed. Let's talk about them when we both get time. Several years after the war was over, Leo took a leave of absence from Standard in 1950, and he went to the south of France, ostensibly to relax and recover from editing 45, 50 magazines or more. But actually, he had a, he had a plan. His goal when he was over there was to work with a literary agent named Jenny Bradley, who was based in Paris, and to publish a new magazine based on Leslie Charteris' The Saint, called The Saint Mystery Magazine, or The Saint Detective, I've forgotten the name, Mystery Magazine, and to publish it abroad. His other goal was to publish anthologies of, of The Saint, which he did manage to achieve 
publishing those both in England and in the United States. But he was never able to manage to publish The Saint Abroad, and so he had to come back to the United States to do that. And that was the end of a dream that he and Sylvia had to live and remain and retire in Paris, I'm sorry, in the south of France. So that was very disappointing for them. Uh, during that first summer in Paris, I'm sorry, in France, they brought my sister, Joan, who was then 16, to live with them for a summer in, in, in the south of France. I never knew what she did, and I was always curious about how she spent the summer. She has deceased now. But I had occasion to, I'd like to know when my time is running out, by no, the way. Keep going, just keep going, we'll, we'll monitor it for you. All right, thank you. I had You're doing great, by the way. <laughs> Her older son, Owen, was east a month or two ago, and I said, do you have any idea what your mother did when she was overseas and she was 16, that summer of 50? And he said, well, I know one thing that she did. She had a brief fling with a very good-looking Moroccan man, boy. The story went, and she told him this, apparently, that she was on the beach one day and ran into these two good-looking young men, neither of whom spoke any English. They were French, basically spoke French. And she got to talking with one, to one of them, and the other one got bored and wandered off. Remember, she was 16, he was apparently a couple years older. And they spent that evening together, and she asked my aunt and uncle if this was all right. And they were hesitant at first, but they said, sure. I actually don't think my parents would have approved, but they, <laughs> in loco parentis, they seemed to approve. So, they, so Joan spent several more nights with this young man, and then he had to leave to go home. So anyway, that's how she spent at least part of that summer. <laughs> but Leo came in contact with Joan again when he opened, when he started renowned publications in 1956. A year or two later, he hired Joan to work for him, and she began, became his right-hand man, so to speak, right-hand woman. And she, her job, and she wrote to me about this, and I looked over those letters recently. She, she had several jobs. One was to select short stories for the British edition of Mike Shane Mystery Magazine, which he had begun uh, not long before, and also to put together and to help compose the new current American Mike Shane, to work with the artists, to work with the printers, and help do all of this. She did not do any writing, she did not work with the, art, with the writers, but she, she was kind of behind the scenes. And, and she wrote at one point, she was often late coming to work, and she said, and he could yell at me, but I didn't care, he could yell at me all he wanted to, it didn't matter. Kind of a little bit brave on her part, but anyway, that's what she said. And then finally, when she did leave after about 18 months, she said that we both had tears in our eyes at that point. But Owen told me a few other things about Leo uh, from his own experience. I have to tell you this one particular story. Uh, my sister's family did not have a lot of money, and Leo was very sensitive to this, and of course Leo had a lot of money. Um, and they, my sister's family lived around uh, Kingston, New York. And this is around 1970 when this next incident occurred. One day, Leo and Sylvia drove up unexpectedly in a big, golden Cadillac. The Cadillac was not new, it was maybe eight or ten years old. And this is what my nephew wrote to me. Joni, we want you to have this. Mom practically fell on the ground. <laughs> he explained, we just bought a new car, all you'll have to do is take us back to the train station <laughs> later on. She wouldn't, she didn't want the car. And he talked her into it. He persuaded, you've got to have this car. Listen, listen, I know you can use it. The problem was that they were a relatively poor family. How could they be seen driving around in this Cadillac? <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous. So they accepted the car. And in fact, 
for a while. He drove around. Uh, Owen said he was nine years old and he was driving around waving to his friends and Leah was cracking up. And they eventually sold the car, by the way. They couldn't, they couldn't deal with it. Um, I have another, yeah, can I have the next slide, please? I wanted to show you this one as well. This is a picture of my sister with Leo, probably a little before the time that he went to work for her. She's probably born like 18 here, and she worked for him a little bit later on. There are a number of stories I could tell you about his relationship with the writers, but this may come up in the discussion later on, so I'll, I'll pass on that now. In 1972, Leo and Sylvia moved to Los Angeles. And why did they do this? Well, there's a story that apparently is true, but I'm not sure it was the only reason they moved. One day, Sylvia in Manhattan, on the streets of Manhattan, was mugged. Hmm. Some guy tried to grab her purse and she fought him off and ran home to, to their apartment in Manhattan and said, Leah, we're moving to California. <laughs> this was conf I heard this story from, from that little baby who's now a 90-year-old woman from my cousin. But I also read this in a story that was written to Sylvia by Lily, what is her name? I've forgotten the last name. Hellman? No, Hellman. White. <laughs> no, no. What's, it doesn't matter. By a friend of Sylvia's who corroborated that story. I understand you moved out to, to L.A. because of what happened to you. In any event, they moved out. But in addition to that particular story, I suspect they were thinking of moving out, or Sylvia was thinking of moving out for a while because she has this, had a sister living in Los Angeles, Teresa, for some time. And their mother also, at that point, lived out there. In any event, um, they continued the, the uh, Mike Shane. They moved that publishing venture out there. And I believe at that time, they had closed down all of their other magazines. Uh, Charlie Chan, Weird Tales that they had picked up for a while. I think those were closed down by the time they moved out there. In any event, um, in October of that year, uh, Leo had a stroke. He was attending a Mystery Writers of America convention in London. And by sheer coincidence, I was in London at the same time. And Sylvia was called over right away. And I got word, apparently, I don't remember, but it, it must have been, Sylvia must have called my mother, who then called my wife, who then called me. And I went over to the hospital and saw Leo and Sylvia. He looked terrible. and. Um, we chatted a while, and then Sylvia said, when are you going back? And I said, Friday, whatever. And they, she said, we'll go back on the plane with you. And they did. And uh, so we, we, I sat with them on the plane almost the entire time. And then we landed in New York, I got off, and they flew on to LA. And he died <coughs> two months later. And that was the last time, of course, I saw him. So. As you know by now, perhaps I'm writing his biography, and my knowledge of Leo was primarily that from the time when I was a child. I didn't know him all that well when I was an adult. Unfortunately, my sister, as you gathered, knew him better. But I did learn quite a bit about him, some of it interesting, some of it shocking. There are other stories I could go into, but I don't really have time. But uh, anyway, I do miss him very much. And Sylvia, and thank you very much. Thank you. So now that Philip has given us a, a portrait of Leo the person, we'll segue into what we're all interested in Leo the editor, Leo the editorial director of the Thrilling Group. Uh, any of you who were here last night, you know that Thrilling was incredibly prolific. And interestingly, uh, they had the corner, they cornered the market on three words. Besides thrilling, there was popular, and there was exciting. So he didn't just launch thrilling detective, there was popular detective and exciting detective, and then there was thrilling western and popular western and exciting western, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But uh, as we get into the discussion, Philip alluded earlier to the fact that uh, Leo had a very good relationship with the writers. And it, and it should be pointed out, whatever you may think of the various pulps that, that the Thrilling Group published, the fact remains that he had very loyal writers and there were reasons for that. So Philip, maybe you could tell us some of those stories about the writers and his generosity to them. Yeah, uh, Earl Wilson, who was a prolific journalist many, many years ago, wrote an article, I believe it was in Writer's Digest in 1938, uh, talking about Lear's career up to that point. And one of the things he pointed out was that, well, I'll read, I'll read you what he wrote. Today, 1938, it is not uncommon for a writer in the hospital to flash him, Leo, an SOS for some money for his family or for an operation, and get a check from Margulies by return mail and advance against his next role. Uh, I have hundreds of letters written by Leo and to Leo, which I've picked up from various universities. And in so many of those letters, you get the sense that he really was very friendly with many, many of his writers. And uh, I, I, don't bring, I didn't bring the letters with me, they're just too numerous, but I can tell you one other story that relates, the, gives you a sense of the relationship. A. Leslie Scott, that's the name I was looking for, Lily Scott wrote, wrote that letter. Uh, Leslie Scott wrote a number, of, a number of stories for Leo. I contacted his son, Justin, who's a novelist, spoke with him on the phone, and Justin told me a little bit about his father and Leo. And he said one day they, they met in a bar. I don't know how they met, they just met in the bar. At the time, his father was writing a poems, published once a month in some journal or other, and Leo said, you know, I'm an editor and I really could use some westerns. This is probably in the 30s. And so, as it turned out, Leslie wrote over 130 Westerns for Leo. And the families became so close that Justin told me his full name is Justin Blazer Leo Scott. And he said, well, when my mother wasn't looking, Leo, my father snuck in Leo as one of my middle names. <laughs> And I called him Uncle Leo. Yeah. I thought that was wonderful. There are other examples. I remember that Earl Wilson article, and if it's not, not mistaken, it was in Writer's Digest. If I'm not mistaken, that's where I first read about the origin of, 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 of the uh, thrilling line. When uh, Margulies and Ned Pines got together, Margulies said, Margulies said to some, we can lick this business, we just need to be fair with our writers which meant we didn't, don't have a big budget, so we have to make a decision fast. If someone sends us a manuscript, we've got to give them a fast yes or no and a fast check. And pay them on acceptance. And pay on acceptance. And the key here, and, and I remember reading a letter from a writer quoting Mart Weisinger, one of the thrilling um, editors in the mid-30s. Margley said, the best manuscripts go to Munsey, then they go to Street and Smith, then they come to thrilling. But sometimes the writer needed to check that week, and he didn't want to wait for Munsey to take two or three weeks, or Street and Smith to take another two weeks to say yes and no, because what if you got two no's? It's a month later, my rent is due. But if you took it to Leo Margulies, you'd only get a fast read, but you'd get the check that Friday. And that was the key, one of the keys to the success of the thrilling group. If you gave the writer with money faster, he'd take less money. And that wasn't predatory, that was just a, the economics of the business. You know, the writers needed to produce, produce a lot of material, a lot of it got rejected. So if it got rejected, you found someone to buy it, so it wasn't wasted paper. But if you need the money now, there were certain editors you could go to and get an advance, or a fast read and a fast check. Whereas other houses, Munsey and, and Street and Smith, they were old style houses, they started in the, in the 1800s. Um, they had a different procedure. They took their time because they could afford to take their time. If they sat on manuscripts, sometimes those manuscripts never got to another house because the writer just gave up. So Leo had it figured out. He did like the business. I once asked John Annabeck, one of the Main Street and Smith editors, who did you consider your biggest rival? 
in publishing. And I thought he'd say Munzee or Popular. He said, no, Standard. Thrilling. Thrilling was their biggest rival because Thrilling had the distribution, the number of magazines, and they basically published similar type stories, which meant that you could go, you could take your manuscript to Street and Smith and maybe wait a month for an answer, or you go to take it to Leo and get an answer that week. And you could still take it to Street and Smith if Leo said no. So that's the key to the success of a, of a publishing house that started in one of the worst years of the Depression. Knowing the psychology of the writers, knowing that if you could pay them faster, they'd be grateful. Now, uh, when you edit as many magazines, or let's say you're responsible for the editorial content of so many magazines, you can't possibly read every submission. You can't possibly supervise the makeup of every magazine. So obviously, Leo functioned as, as kind of an editorial director. I'm sure he did hands-on editing, too. But uh, part of the lore of the Thrilling Group is that he instituted a kind of unique system um, whereby uh, uh, stories were chosen not by one person alone, but by several. Philip, you want to comment on that method? Yeah, he developed a system whereby he had uh, each manuscript that came in, he gave to three readers, assistant editors, if you will. And the policy was more or less as follows. If all three said no, it was a no. If one out of three said no, it was probably a no, but there were some exceptions I'll come to. If two out of three readers said yes, he would look it over and decide, make a final decision. The final decision was always his. And if all three said yes, it was a go. Something along those lines. If, on the other hand, this was an established writer and they all said no, Leah would look it over and wonder why they said no and might overrule them. But generally, I, I think he would go along with it. So he did have this veto power. Um, but that was basically the way he did it, as I understand it. And he did write about this in some detail in some article. By the way, I do have two more slides. May I have the next slide? I just forgot them. This is one of Leo and Sylvia. I believe this was taken in the south of France when they were first there, so this would be in the early 50s. And it's one of the very few pictures I have of, of Sylvia, actually. And one final one. This is Leo when he was 75, Whoa. the last year of his life. Okay, thank you. Was Sylvia from Texas? I thought I read that somewhere. Yes. Okay, I thought I'd Yes, from Dallas. Dallas. What do you think is, is Leo's legacy? What do you think ultimately he'll be most remembered for? I've wondered about that myself. Um, I was part of a, an informal writing group uh, at our local library, and the name came up, and one young man, his ears shot up, his eyes shot up. And I said, well, why do why you react that way? He's, he's, he's interested in science fiction. So I said, well, obviously you know who he is, and tell me, what do you think his legacy is? He said, well, he just somehow inspires us because he seemed to, he seemed to, um, it's hard really to describe it, seemed to be such an inspiration to new writers. He seemed to have that reputation, and, and I think of him that way, and certainly he did, start many writers. Um, they first wrote for him, and he also changed careers by saying, okay, you've got to do something like this rather than something like that. So I think that may be one of his legacies, that he was known for starting or changing successful careers for people. Uh, he seems to have that, that sense of, uh, that seems to be a, a strong memory associated with him. He launched a lot of careers, a lot of careers. And, and one of the reasons was is he had a lot of pages to fill. It was, you know, your, your, your A. Leslie Scott story, that was, that was not just a generous man. That's a guy who knows, I'm going to be publishing Westerns for the foreseeable future, and I'm going to be publishing lots of Westerns, and that's not going to change. I'm going to need Westerns, and, and I, if I burn out my writers, what am I going to feed? So I need new writers. I need fresh writers, and I need writers who will, who will bring a fresh attitude, and, you know, 
always being on the prowl for new talent was probably one of the keys because he took an interest in his right, a human interest and not just a commercial interest in that. I think that's very important. A lot of other houses just, they looked at the slush pile, they bought from their regulars, they slapped the magazines together. Leo, you know, Leo knew he needed to cultivate writers the way you cultivate plants, you know, to get the best out of them and, and to keep them selling to you and not someone else. There's a question I've, I've had that I'm curious about, and, and Philip, you may know from your research. There was a period in the mid to late 30s where Leo got some writers that uh, were, were new to, to thrilling. There's since been some speculation that he was paying them largely for their names and getting other people to write the stories. One of them was Arthur B. Reeve, who had created the character, Detective Craig Kennedy, who was originally created for the Hearst magazine Cosmopolitan back in the teens, and he had later wound up in the Muncie book, Detective Fiction Weekly, and some other pulps. There were some Arthur B. Reeves stories published, I think, by Thrilling circa 1936-37, but by that time, Reeve had largely stopped writing. The second one was Leslie Charteris himself. There were saint stories. Since Charteris's hardcover books were being published by Doubleday, some of his saint stories appeared in the Doubleday pulp short stories, but there were others that were published by Muncie's Detective Fiction Weekly. But the story that I heard, and I, I wish I could remember who told me, was that Charteris's thrilling group saint stories, which again is around 1937, 1938, were actually written by somebody else. H have you come across anything like that? Any information? To Somewhere in the latter case of Charteris. In fact, Leo was criticized for, for using such lousy ghostwriters <laughs> for Charteris and then he better shape up and use some better one. So I think there must be some truth to that. As for the other, I really don't know. I, mm -hmm. I have to say I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it may be true in some cases, yeah. But I, I can add this to that. You know, there was a system where they, according to Moore Weisinger, um, where they would buy from a, a quality writer a, a substandard manuscript, one that was like three quarters good or all good except for the ending, and. Leah would buy it and have one of his in-house writers like Jack Schiff or Mort Weisinger or, or one of the others punch it up and make it a quality story or make it a publishable story. He, the writer got paid less than you know, his usual fee, but it was, it was a salvage job. So in the case of the Arthur yeah. B. Reeve, maybe they were rejects that were punched up by an in-house writer, did Reeve a favor, the byline was legitimate, and the story was published. Well, that was apparently part of his policy right from the beginning, that if the story needed some fixing up, he, he and his writers would perhaps do the fixing up. Yeah. The, and I, might not even charge the writers, that is to say. No, cut, they, cut no, they wouldn't charge the writers for that. Or, or, I, or, cut, or cut the payment. I, I wonder, they, he was willing to do that, apparently. Yeah, he was, because it was, it was, it was, he needed a lot, he needed to fill pages, mm -hmm. and he needed to fill pages with something that was up to the level of quality that, that he'd, he'd stick. I once heard a story, and I'd love to know the formula, but it, it said that every long, probably short, some of the shorter ones, but every long story published in um, the Thrilling Pulps had to have four or five or six key ingredients in the first page or so, first few paragraphs. I once interviewed Samuel Mines, and he told me this, but he didn't remember what the, the things were. But you know, if you would analyze all the lead novels to the, to, to the thrilling house stories that you would you'd probably find five common elements that were part of their formula. The in-house writers would, would punch up the opening so that would happen. Mines once told me he did a Western for Margulies. The opening was rewritten, the middle was rewritten, and some of the ending was rewritten. And you know, that's how they, they always considered the lead novels subject to revi significant revision. Sometimes the writer did it, sometimes others did it. Uh, one, of the, one of the most popular thrilling group titles and one that uh, was avidly collected by many of the hero pulp collectors was, of course, The Phantom Detective, which lasted for uh, about 18, 18 years, 20 years, I guess, 1953? Yeah, yeah, 20 like years and 170-some issues. And again, we're talking about pulp, pulp collector lore. The story was that there was a partner uh, of Ned Pines named Marcus Goldsmith who took a personal interest in the Phantom Detective, and that the writers would, uh, I don't know what pecking order, I don't know if they gave him the editors first, but at some point, Marcus Goldsmith demanded to read all the Phantoms himself and make his own suggestions, and he had input. Now, some of the writers, I believe Norman Daniels was one of them, 
said that he would deliberately write things that he knew that Goldsmith would object to and that he would hope that Goldsmith would then think to having found these objectionable elements that by asking Daniels to remove them he had done his job and in doing that Daniels could then write the story that he actually wanted. So Philip, what do you know about the the uh, uh, enigmatic Mr. Marcus Gold? Not much. I know that he was very interested in in what was happening in his company. Um, Leo mentioned this himself. He said that as, which is something that's unusual in a publishing house of this sort, is that the publishers, and he referred to him and Ned Pines, take much interest in what we're doing, unlike what happens in other, pub mm. other publishing houses. As to specifics, I can't comment on I just don't know. But I suspect that what you're saying might very well be the case. Is it your sense that Leo enjoyed one particular type of pulp, a certain genre more than the others, and paid perhaps more attention to, to I one? I think that's true, but I think that somehow shifted. I think initially he was fascinated by Westerns. I think he moved more into science fiction. What appealed to him about science fiction, I gather from his writings, was that you couldn't fool the readers with science fiction. You had to be very accurate in what you were saying. You couldn't make things up because they were based on, if not current science, well, you could perhaps fool people for the time being about future science, but sooner or later that might become real science. And that, I think, appealed to him very much, the fact that you had to know what you were talking about. And he stressed this when he wrote about science fiction. So th those two, I would think, were his favorites. That, yeah. That's my impression. Uh, I've always thought that the, the science fiction pulp, specifically thrilling wonder stories, which of course he bought from Hugo Gerns back when it was Wondered Stories, and 36. then um, Startling Stories, which they introduced in 1939. They started out as appealing more or less to adolescent sensibilities, and during the war years, towards the end of the war years, they were initially edited by Moore Weisinger, and then later by Oscar J. Friend. Uh, is it 44, 45 that Sam Merwin takes over? At, at some point, some towards point. the end of the war, these magazines matured, and they printed a much better grade of fiction. And in fact, the post-war issues of Thrilling Wonder and Startling Stories have some of the classic uh, science fiction pulp stories of the year, including a very innovative story, Philip J. Uh, Jose Farmer's The Lovers in 1952, which brought sex, mature adult sex, to the science fiction story. I'm wondering, have you found anything that indicates that Leo played a part in that decision to, to kind of upgrade the quality of those? Or was that left to those individual editors, Merwin and Mines? I'd be inclined to think it was left largely to them. I know certainly earlier on he left the science fiction genre to uh, Weisinger. He really relied on Weisinger a lot, as did Pines. So it might very well be the case that while he favored science fiction, I don't think he relied too much on his own knowledge in terms of discerning what might be appropriate to publish. That makes sense. That's my guess. Uh, I have a question. Did you ever hear any of the stories about the conflict between uh, uh, the Black Bat series that Leo oversaw and the Batman comics? Because they came out at the same time, the same Yeah, month. they did. Well, I think they were trying to avoid, and Leo was trying to avoid a, a, uh, a lawsuit, and they ended up changing the name, uh, or they came to some agreement that, that avoided the lawsuit. I, I don't know what they have. Did they actually make a change in the name? I think No, I, the agreement they made is that the Black Bat would not be in comic books and Batman would not be in pulps. Oh, that's and what, that was, right. That was yeah, the compromise. Okay. Without a lawsuit. Without, there was no without lawsuit. any other changes. Yeah, all right, fine, yeah. Okay. But there, it, was, there was a, it was a very serious matter for a brief period. The, the two thing characters came out within a month of each other. Yes, very close to each other. But the Black right. Bat was created first. Mm -hmm. But no one knew that because yeah. it was, it's about publication state, dates, not right. concept of, a, yeah. of origin. Uh, I, I, I don't want to resort to too shameless a plug, but for those of you who are really interested in the inside baseball of publishing and how some disputes are resolved, in my magazine, Blood and Thunder, in a, in a couple of issues, I reprinted the actual pages, depositions uh, by Ned Pines and by Leo and Harry Steger over the use of the phrase G-Men. Uh, Standard, of course, had their popular magazine, G-Men, which featured the adventures of uh, Special Agent Dan Fowler, and popular in 1937, a year or so later, came out with Ace G-Men stories. And 
the thrilling group folks thought that that was an infringement and they took him to court seeking an injunction to stop the magazine. Very fascinating stuff if you're interested in that kind of legal wrangling and, that, and in the course of these depositions they talk a lot about the, the scope of the companies and their publishing operations and things like that. And that's to underscore the point that because the competition was so fierce with these magazines, you know, there was only so much newsstand space available and the big publishers, the popular publications, the standards, the Street and Smiths, it was in their best interest to launch a lot of magazines because their distributor could then insist on larger share of, of footage uh, rack space mm -hmm. at, the, at the newsstands. So it was a very competitive business and an editor often got sucked into these, these other conflicts where you know, the use of a marketing phrase could mean the difference between success or failure for a title. Um, we have to wrap up this portion. We've got a few minutes for questions. So those of you who would like to address questions to Philip about Leo, by all means, now's your chance. Please stand up and give us your question precisely and as loudly as you can. Yes, sir. Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I've read various opinions about that. Um, I've read where Pines fired Leo and brought in more sex into his magazines and more violence, and somehow it didn't work because the Pines slipped, the uh, Pope slipped away anyway, which they might have done regardless. I've read that, um, you know, I never heard from Leo myself. I wish I had asked him that question, he might not have said. I've also read that he simply uh, wanted a change and was tired of managing so many magazines. I don't really know the answer to the question. My, my feeling is that it was a mutual decision, that Pines was not unhappy when he left, but that he never actually fired him, and Leo really wanted to do something else. He took this leave of absence, which was a mutual decision. He extended the leave, it was a six-month leave, he extended it for three months, and during that second three-month period, he resigned very suddenly, apparently. At least it was seemingly suddenly. And he went on to uh, start his own company, several companies, before renown. He started two or three other small companies. So he wasn't exactly lost, so I don't think it was totally a firing situation. That's the best answer I can give you. Someone told me that uh, uh, Pines blamed Margulies for the loss of circulation over time, but all the pulps were dying. There was, you know, there was almost no fixing the pulps. Every, every outfit went out. So it was, it, I think Margulies felt he was being unfairly um, treated for something that was not under his control. Yeah, all right. Tony? Uh, yes, I was wondering if going through the correspondence and such, I mean, he gave a lot of editors their start. Of course, Mort Weisner, my late friend Jack Schiff, Bernie Breslauer, who also went to DC Comics. Were there any of the editors who were his protégés who he was proudest of? I'm sorry, who? Uh, uh, what, were what? there editors, particular editors, who he'd given their start, who he was particularly proud of their careers, or that he started them on? I would say Weisinger was probably the most prominent when Weisinger, before Weisinger left to go to D.C., he said to him, it's a good move, there's more future in comics than in the pulps. This was 1935? No, 39. 39. Or 40. Okay, yeah, 1939 or 40. He, he already saw that pulps were shrinking, and I think he was very proud of, first of all, hiring him, along with Schiff, Jack Schiff, who we hired just about the same time, and they both went, as you know. Um, among editors, I, I can't think of others, but those, those two I think he was very proud of starting on their careers. He hired Schiff right out of college. Yeah, he did. Did you ever One hear of, a, of an editor who worked for him briefly named uh, Wayne Rogers? I've heard of the name. Wayne Rogers was a guy who went to work for Margulies in the early 30s, married a secretary named Charlotte Lane. And there's a story around Rogers that he actually eloped from Munsey with a secretary and stole some money. And I'm thinking maybe the story applies to Thrilling, not Munsey. 
because you know how many secretaries can he elope with? <laughs> you know, can a guy elope with even if he's a prolific pulp editor? He was originally named Archibald Bittner, and he changed his name after some of these issues. We have time for one or two more questions, Michelle. Yes, Leo, uh, uh, did he have anything to do with publishing comic books and paperback books in popular library? By 1943, Sander Thrilling was the only publisher in America publishing all three uh, types of, of fiction uh, publications. Did everybody hear that question? Yeah. No. Okay. It, it has to do with Leo's influence, whether he had any influence on, on the uh, standard operations decision to go into comic books in the early 40s. And paperbacks. And paperbacks. I don't know. Do you know, Philip? I'm sure he had a major decision. There was a, a major influence on those decisions. I'm sure he did. Because he could see in 1940 or earlier that pulps were not going to be around that long. And yet, as you know, from your chart in this publication and from a chart I also compiled, pulps reached their peak at Standard in 1950, um, actually after they had in the field as a whole. So although he predicted their early demise, they somehow lasted a little longer there at Standard than they did in general. But he, he knew that the uh, end was near. And so he broadened. He broadened the base, along with Pines. I think Pines saw that as well. But yeah. I think the impetus was Leo's. Last question, Rich. I was wondering, he uh, published the Charlie Chan magazine in the 1970s. And I, I like the character, but I always wondered, that seemed like a strange time to introduce a new magazine based on a licensed character, because the market for fiction has changed. It, what prompted that? I don't know. I think it was, uh, I don't know what prompted it, but it didn't last long, as you know. He only think he had it for three years, something like that. And he was criticized even when he hired it. Uh, people didn't think it was a great idea. I don't know really what the impetus was to, to pick it up, frankly. I do know that he uh, was, uh, he broached Johnston McCulley about doing a Zorro magazine for Renown, but the rights were tied up. McCulley had already sold them. And later he did The Man from Uncle. Yeah, which was you know a very interesting magazine. I remember buying it as a kid. Um, it was essentially a pulp digest, but based on a TV show. So I think Leo was probably open to licensed properties that he thought could could sell magazines. And yeah, Zorro a, was one. Charlie Chan was one. The Man from Uncle was another. He had a license from MGM, and uh, to re to reproduce that series. It didn't last long either. Well, two years, but that was a good run. For well, the Man from Uncle lasted even less. Yeah, well, about that, a year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, with that, I want to thank our uh, special guest, Philip Sherman, and my fellow panelist, Will Murray. You've got a full uh, evening of programming ahead of us, so I'll turn it back over to Mike Chomko. Thanks again. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps.